The content of this audio recording is copyrighted by Dr. Kevin Spellman. Reproduction in any form, except for personal use, is prohibited by law. To subscribe to this monthly service, go to thespellmanreport.com. Now, here is Dr. Kevin Spellman. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kevin Spellman, and welcome to the inaugural issue of the Spellman Report, Vital Pharmacology. A little bit about me. I have a PhD in biology and focused on molecular techniques to elucidate the modes of activity of natural products. Besides laboratory work, I also have been a clinician involved in clinical trials, product development, and FDA regulation issues. My mission in the Spellman Report, Phytopharmacology, is to keep you abreast of the latest topics that can make a difference in your clinical practice for better patient outcomes. Consider this an audio science journal that will keep you updated on the newest research on natural products. To do that, I have a team of researchers, and we spend quite a lot of time every week going over the latest research so we can deliver to you data to inform your clinical practice and your self-care. Having been a clinician for a couple of decades, I know how hard it is to keep up with the newest research. My goal is to provide for you the best evidence base available to serve your patients and the best possible therapeutic outcomes. Every month, we will issue a new report focusing on special topics such as COVID, medicinal plants in general, we'll review the pharmacology of various plants and compounds from natural products from a clinician's perspective. Also, we'll be looking at cannabis and cannabinoids in detail. In this first year, we'll have quite a lot of docs who are using cannabinoids in our interview processing. And finally, we'll have the latest news to use for you clinicians. Then we'll have a second part of the program. And in that second part, we will interview clinicians and researchers who are doing work that may be of interest to you and inspirational. So in this first issue, let's start with the elephant in the room, COVID-19, also known as SARS-CoV-2. Interestingly, South Korea and the United States announced their first cases of COVID on the same day. South Korea now has less than 20 infections a day, and we now have 1.33 million total cases, accounting for one-third of the total number of COVID infections on the planet. We have 27,000 new cases a day. Is this comparison fair? Perhaps not. We are different cultures and we're different societies. But one thing is clear, the public health system in South Korea had a rapid and diligent response where ours was a bit slow. There's also another difference in these cultures compared to ours, and that is that Asian cultures are particularly reverent of botanical medicines. Most of Asia has a high regard for medicinal plants, whereas in the U.S. specifically, we have let go of the roots of pharmacy, which were botanical medicines, and we've also let go of the phytopharmacology as a topic to study. So in this first issue, I'd like to focus on zinc for just a few minutes and talk about zinc and immune function. But as you may know, zinc is the second most abundant trace element which exists in the divalent cation state in the body. After the discovery of zinc deficiency in the 1960s, it soon became clear that zinc is essential for the function of the immune system. 
zinc ions are involved in regulating intracellular signaling pathways and, and adaptive immune cells. And zinc homeostasis is largely controlled via the expression and action of zinc importers and zinc exporters, as well as zinc binding proteins. Deficiencies in concentration of metal ions like zinc and also calcium or iron will significantly alter cellular signal transduction. Also, it will alter DNA synthesis and mRNA transcription, as well as protein aggregation and protein function. Zinc dependence has been noted in all classes of enzymes, such as transferases, hydrolases, lysases, and isomerases, as well as ligases. The physiological importance of zinc has been shown through in silico studies, which showed that about 10% of the overall human proteome can potentially bind zinc. Now, stop and think about that for a second. 10% of the overall human proteome can potentially bind zinc. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, this actually makes sense, given that zinc is the second most abundant trace element on the planet. Therefore, we have, if you will, structurally coupled with zinc. Now, zinc deficiency has been known for about 50 years to be associated with things like skin abnormalities, hypogonadism, cognitive impairment, growth retardation, and imbalanced immune reactions, which favor allergies and autoimmune diseases, TH2 more focused. The overall frequency of zinc deficiency worldwide is estimated to be higher than 20%. Anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties of zinc have been long documented. Underlying mechanisms, however, are still not entirely clear. Now, in general, cellular function, such as the intracellular killing of harmful pathogens, cytokine production, as well as ROS production, ROS being reactive oxygen species production, you're going to hear this term a lot, are dependent on zinc and are impaired due to zinc deficiency. Zinc deficiency also adversely affects the maturation function of both T and B cells, and that would occur through dysregulation of basic biological functions at the cellular level. So, for example, for T cells, a disturbed ratio of Th1 and Th2 cells in favor of Th2-driven allergic reactions is a well-known consequence of zinc deficiency. Zinc flux and homeostatic zinc signals are highly important for adequate T-cell differentiation, and this observed malfunction can be reversed by zinc supplementation. In addition, pro-tolerogenic immune reaction is triggered by long-lasting changes and intracellular zinc levels due to induction of regulatory T cells and dampening pro-inflammatory Th17 and Th9 cells. Zinc also plays an important role in viral infections, and that's where we're going with this. The replication of things like SARS coronavirus, hepatitis Z virus, and H1N1 influenza virus has been shown to be inhibited by both zinc oxide and zinc salts. How zinc exhibits its antiviral activities is not clearly understood. However, among the possible means is the inhibition of viral binding to the mucosa, also potentially suppression of inflammatory effects, and potentially the generation of antiviral interferon and inhibition of key enzymes in viral replication. Recently, a study unraveled the ability of zinc salts in inhibiting hepatitis E virus replication through the inhibition of RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Now, notably, this enzyme also plays a key role in coronavirus replication. 
Studies have shown that zinc status of an individual is a critical factor. It affects immunity against viral infections, and zinc-deficient populations are known for being at risk of acquiring infections such as HIV or HCV, hepatitis C virus. There's unfortunately been few RCTs, randomized clinical control trials, that have evaluated the effect of zinc supplementation on the immune response. However, a study by Acevedo and Morillo, among 103 children aged between one month and five years with pneumonia, showed a statistically significant clinical improvement in the zinc supplemented group compared to placebo. They were measuring duration of illness, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation here. They also found an increase in the cytokine response in Th1 patterns, cytokines such as IL-2 and interferon, only in the zinc group, but not with the group that was not supplemented. Another RCT on oral supplementation of high-dose zinc, now this is 150 milligrams a day, and I don't recommend this long-term use of amount like that would cause immunosuppression. But what they found is after stem cell transplantation, Patients on that dose demonstrated that they had enhanced thymic function and output of new CD4 naive T cells, helping to prevent the reactivation of Torquay-Tano virus. Now, present day, we've got a 2020 paper entitled Improving the Efficacy of Chloroquine and Hydroxychloroquine Against SARS-CoV-2 May Require Zinc Additives, a Better Synergy for Future COVID-19 Clinical Trials. This is by Shitu and Al-Falami. They showed that chloroquine can induce the uptake of zinc into the cytosol of the cell, which is capable of inhibiting RNA-dependent RNA polymerase and ultimately halting the replication of coronavirus in the host cell. Considering the importance of zinc, these authors conclude that clinical trials predicted upon synergistic administration of zinc supplement with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine against the novel SARS-CoV-2 virus should be considered so that better COVID-19 clinical trials, trial outcomes can be obtained going forward. Now, this is an important point, and what we're seeing overall with the chloroquine trials, hydroxychloroquine trials, is they're failing. However, some patients do appear to respond. The difference may be zinc status. Now, of course, zinc has a special relationship with copper. Let's talk about copper for a second, because copper plays a crucial role in immunity by participating in the development and differentiation of immune cells. In vitro studies have shown that copper demonstrates antiviral properties, and copper chelates inhibit replication of human influenza viruses. So there does seem to be something to copper as well that may be useful. So it may not be taking high doses of zinc and throwing off your zinc copper balance is the way to go, but taking both of them together might be a smarter way to go. Now, there's botanicals that have shown an effect against coronavirus as well, and I'll talk about a few of these um, this episode and next episode as well. But I want to start by mentioning in silico research. And in silico research is basically research that's done on a computer screen where they can measure the binding energy of a small molecule to a protein and therefore come up with a conclusion that it will bind or it won't bind. And there's prudence necessary here because... Docking stores are calculated binding affinity, but they cannot determine if a compound is an agonist or an inhibitor until there's a bioassay. And so if we look at the past studies, the top 10 most potent ligands obtained from in vitro screening often fail in bioassays. 
So be careful. Do not overinterpret docking results. In fact, it's interesting until there's a bioassay, and then it gets to be more interesting. Even in bioassays, it's still only interesting. But having said that, let's look at the research we've got for the botanicals. And these are bioassays. No, they're not human trials. But let's take a look at the salvia miltoriza. Traditional use of salvia miltoriza was said to cure fever and chills due to consumption and was used for a wide variety of blood stasis disorders. So there does seem to be, in terms of its use for fever and chills, a history of use in infection. Now, the compounds that we're interested in today, and on another episode, we may be interested in different compounds because plants have so many different families of compounds, the tanchinones. And there's a number of different tanchinones, a whole grouping of tanchinones. Tanchinone 1, tanchinone 2A, 2B, cryptotanchinone, tanchinone 5 and 6, dihydrotanchinone, 1,2-dihydrotanchinone. So there's a bunch of these. But what we'll find is that there's very interesting activity from dihydrotanchinone. And that activity ranges from about 0.4 micrograms per mil to about 4 micrograms per mil. And so for us as clinicians, this puts it in the range of possibilities in terms of actually having an effect in the clinic from taking the whole herb. My rule of thumb is anything below 10 micrograms per mil or 10 micromolar, they're not exactly the same, but they're in the ballpark, is probably of interest. Anything over that is probably not. And by the way, you should apply that to your herb-drug interaction research as well. Most of the herb-drug interaction research is done on extraordinarily high concentrations and therefore should not be trusted as being clinically relevant. And that will be a whole other issue we will do on the Spellman Report. So for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, we'll see very good results from tanchinone. And we'll also see that the tanchinones, if we look at their pharmacokinetics, are absorbed fairly easily. However, their half-life is quite short. The half-life tends to be between two and five hours. And so what that suggests to us is that we're probably going to need to dose multiple times per day to have any sort of an effect from this plant. And so I would say that's a QID dosing strategy. And the traditional dose is about 6 to 15 grams a day. So clearly, you're taking a lot of this herb. By the way, just in terms of dosing momentarily, we will have an episode on dosing as well in the Spellman Report. But on dosing, we need to be aware that a lot of the dosing that we're seeing on the shelves of products being sold are really quite low. In other words, I would call them subclinical in many cases. So when you hear these doses, they're going to sound high to you, but this is traditionally what was used in medicine. Now, another plant I want to talk about is Eclonia cava. It was known to reduce phlegm and soften areas of hardness, such as in nodules in the neck. And so we have to think here that this was also used for infection. Nonetheless, in modern phytotherapy, people are focused on the fluorotannins. And Echelonia shows good activity in terms of these fluorotannins, antioxidant activity, anti-cancer activity, anti-diabetic activity, anti-human immunodeficiency virus activity, anti-hypertensive activity, et cetera, et cetera, anti-allergic activity. So really quite, quite interesting. 
And the fluorocannons that I'm interested in today to talk with you about are called diacol and echol. And diacol has got a IC50 of 2.7 micromolars in a SARS-CoV model. Now, that's SARS as in SARS-CoV-1, not SARS-CoV-2. But be aware that that may be very different for SARS-CoV-2. However, there is about an 80% homology between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. Echol also has some activity, but it's up in the higher range of just under 50 micromolar, and so it's probably not clinically relevant for us. The dose for Echolonia cava appears to be about 6 to 15 grams a day. If you go over and look at the species that the PCM movement was using, Echolonia carome, not Echolonia cava. However, the plants are quite similar, and that dose is uh, relevant for Echolonia cava. Another plant that's sold off the shelves and out of manufacturers as well is Scutellaria bicolensis, also known as Chinese skullcap. Chinese skullcap is traditionally used to clear heat and dry dampness for heat patterns with high fever, irritability, thirst, cough, and expectoration of thick yellow sputum or hot sores. Also for acute and chronic lung heat as well as cough. So Scutellaria bicolensis was clearly used for infection. And in that note, what we're interested in here specifically, now there's other compounds for the, besides the flavonoids that are active in this plant, but today we're going to talk about the flavonoids, scutellarin, scutellarian, and myrcetine. And scutellarin is the glycoside of scutellarin, scutellarin being the A-glycone. Scutellarin shows activity at 0.86 micromolar. In other words, that's 860 nanomolar, and that is definitely in clinical relevant range. Myrcetin shows activity at 2.71 micromolar, and that is still in clinical range. Now, given that, this is why this plant appears to be selling off the shelves, because this range, these IC50s, are, by the way, are not for SARS-CoV-2, but for SARS-CoV-1. What's interesting with scutellarin is the absorption. And what was shown is that the absorption of scutellarin done the traditional Chinese medicine way of wine process shows an enhanced pharmacokinetics. And this enhanced pharmacokinetics is better area under the curve and better Cmax. So that doesn't mean that the crude won't give you some, some medicine. It will. But the wine process seems to be better absorbable. Based on traditional use, the dose would be about 3 to 9 grams a day. And by the way, the half-life of these uh, scutellarin flavonoids are about between 17 and 18 hours. So BID is a fine dosing strategy here, whereas some of these other plants needs to be much higher. Now, finally, let's talk about Sambucus. Now, Sambucus nigra, black elderberry, is a rage right now as well, and it's selling off the shelves. And there's a reason for that, because, in fact, it has shown really strong results in randomized controlled trials for colds and for flus, a shortened duration and less symptomology from, from these infections. There's a related species called Sambucus formazona that has been tested against a coronavirus called NL63. And this coronavirus is widely spread throughout the planet already. It does cause severe cough and lung conditions in some people. 
but for most people it tends to be mild to moderate infection. You would recognize it probably as saying you had a bad cold. This particular species was used and they discovered that the caffeic acid appeared to be the vital component, the active constituent. And they showed an ICE-50 of about 3.54 for this particular coronavirus. And by the way, chlorogenic acid, the next caffeic acid derivative that was active was about just under 50 micromolars, so probably not relevant. But nonetheless, I want to talk about caffeic acid for a second because that should get us into thinking about common constituents. And common constituents such as caffeic acid around in many different plants, quercetin, a flavonoid found in many different plants, they often get skipped from bioassays because they are common. And therefore, researchers want the active constituent, the silver bullet, as Jim Duke used to say. Now, herbal medicine is a shotgun approach. We're going after many different effects. And so having a full-spectrum approach, full-spectrum product, may be very important to clinical results. We may think we know what the active constituent is, but I can tell you over years of doing this that we are often wrong. So whole plant extracts oftentimes can be advantageous. Some other plants worth mentioning, echinacea to prevent um, upper respiratory tract infections, a recent paper called Use of Echinacea Force to Prevent Coronavirus Infections was published, and he suggested that it could help with coronavirus too. Unfortunately, he was a little weak on showing evidence against uh, specifically SARS-CoV-2. Another honorable mention would be Heligornium sedoides, also known as Umca lobo, which uh, really hasn't caught on that well unless you're in the know in the herb world. The mass consumer market hasn't picked up that much. But it also has been a good preventative as well as a treatment for broad panel of respiratory viruses. And there's a number of RCTs out with that as well. Now, I'm going to stop there, and we're going to go on with our interview with Dr. Jun Chen. But before we do that, I want to talk about what's happening next month. We'll cover another COVID topic and focus again on more plants and then interview a researcher with, in the COVID area. And now, let's talk about Dr. Jun Chen. For our interview today, we've got Dr. Junella Chen. For over a decade, Dr. Chen has practiced medicine in California, specializing in osteopathic manipulative medicine, nutrition, acupuncture, and medical cannabis. She's a Bronx native who moved back to New York five years ago. Dr. Chen is currently treating both children and adults in New York City. She's dedicated to thinking beyond the limitations of standard allopathic medicine and has extensive integrative medical training, including nutritional biochemistry at Cornell University, Touro University College of Osteopathic Medicine in California, medical acupuncture at Harvard University, and a research position at Columbia University Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at Women's Health. Dr. Chen is an advocate for better understanding of the science and medicine of cannabis. Her team of physicians consult with patients all over the world. They've been integrating medical cannabis since 2001. Her work has been featured in Forbes, LA Times, CNN, Good Morning America, among others. The book she co-authored, Cannabis and CBD for Health and Wellness, was published in June of 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background in medicine? Sure, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. 
So my background is in integrative health, uh, integrative medicine. How I got to it was since I was a kid, actually a teenager, I had really low, terrible low back pain. Everyone thought it was scoliosis or sort of mechanical low back pain, but I was subsequently diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. It's also called AS, and it's a very progressive arthritic disease of the spine. There's no cure for it. Basically, it's just palliative care. So I went through physical therapy, of course, anti-inflammatories, opiates, and muscle relaxants, and I did a lot of integrative care coming from a Chinese background. My family did acupuncture for me, herbs, you name it, I did it. <laughs> you know, I would soak in these baths of, of herbs and the whole house would smell of Chinese herbs as they cooked it. And nothing really gave me long-lasting relief. I still had a lot of inflammation. And I went to medical school in San Francisco and this was shortly after they legalized medical cannabis in California. And I was working with an HIV and AIDS specialist. And he saw that I would always wear a back brace, you know, coming in and doing rounds, and I'd always sit whenever I could, or I was leaning against a wall, but he clearly saw that I was in pain. And he had asked about it, and I explained that I had AS, and he immediately said, well, you're not going to finish med school. If you have AS, then you're wearing a brace, and you can't even stand, you can't help me in the OR, you can't deliver babies, I don't see how you're going to finish med school and become a physician. You know, you're you're looking at working 100 hours a week here. And he said, I have a solution. And he gave me a bottle, a little tincture bottle of, of cannabis. And I had not tried cannabis before. My family's always been very, very strict. Chinese growing up, Chinese American. My family believed that cannabis led to schizophrenia. And I had this huge stigma. I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. And so when I think of cannabis and marijuana, I thought of gangsters, I thought of high school dropouts, I, and I just thought, well, those were the kids that just never finished school. So I had my own stigma about cannabis, but reluctantly I tried it because I knew it was either that or drop out of med school. And, you know, that's where it all began. It worked within the weekend. I didn't feel high from it. I did feel a little bit altered, like having a glass of wine. And he had said that to me. He didn't call it CBD oil or anything like that. He just said, this is marijuana. It's steeped in alcohol tincture. It's a different type of the plant. Mm -hmm. It's a different plant. It's not going to make you feel as high as you, you know, normally would smoking it. That's basically all he told me. And he said, just try it before you go to bed. And when I tried it and it started working, I, I remember going back into his office. I said, what the hell is this? <laughs> Why don't we know about this? <laughs> And he, there's a whole world of plant medicine out there. And he started mentoring me and introduced me to the world of plant medicine and integrative medicine. And being in California, I was in this switch box. So I had the best of both worlds, learning about integrative care and then studying to be a regular physician. I went to a DO school, so I was studying to be an osteopathic physician. So I learned about osteopathic manipulation and cranial osteopathy, biodynamics, all that world, and so it was really just a wonderful opportunity. I, my chronic pain led me to medical cannabis and integrative care. What an inspiring story, I'm sure, for so many people who've probably had um, a very similar experience. Now, recently, shifting away from medical cannabis, I'd like to come back to that in a later interview with you, but recently you mentioned to me that you had done some work, some volunteer work, um, in this crazy pandemic, COVID-19 times, 
at a New York hospital. I, I'd like to discuss that a little bit with you. Sure, sure. I moved back to New York uh, about five years ago. So I was in California and had my practice there. And now I'm, I'm in the city. And so when this whole pandemic started in March, it hit here pretty hard pretty quickly. You know, a very dense population here. We're on subways and buses. We're very shoulder to shoulder. And so I was asked to volunteer at an urgent care center to really help relieve the efforts of my other colleagues. And so what I was doing was helping triage, helping treating patients, and really doing whatever I could to relieve the healthcare team. And at the same time, I had to maintain oversight of my own clinical practice and patients via telehealth. So it was really quite challenging. So I did that for a couple of weeks until I decided it just was not safe for me to continue. I'm sure the safety piece is concerning the lack of PPE. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what you saw in terms of PPE being available? Sure. Well, in the beginning when all this started, no one really knew what was happening. There was no protocols. It wasn't very organized. And so we didn't have PPEs because they didn't think we needed PPEs. <laughs> so, so they were saying, well, people in acute care, you know, when they get to the ICU or when they get to the unit, you know, when they need the vent, that's when you'll need PPEs. But right now, as you're, you're seeing patients in urgent care, they're coming in, this is probably the worried well. You don't have to worry about PPEs. And then they say, these patients don't have shortness of breath. They, they don't have COVID. So it was sort of that back and forth for a very long time. And some of these patients were quite ill, you know, fever and chills. They definitely looked like they had compromised lung function. But because there were a lack of PPEs, uh, there was no testing. Most of us being exposed and not really knowing how to handle it because of the administration in, in a lot of these clinical care settings just didn't mobilize fast enough. And so I think you mentioned to me uh, in a previous conversation we had that you actually brought, brought your own uh, PPEs. I did. So I brought my own PPEs, but the administration was quite upset about that. And they said, if you're going to bring your own and you don't have enough for everyone else, then don't bring it at all because it makes them look bad. You know, here we are, the doctors and nurses are pooling together funds to purchase PPEs on our own or we would bring it in on our own. And the administrators didn't like that at all, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm sure that there was a cosmetic piece to this as well. The last stat I read was that 7,000 healthcare providers had passed away just wondering, how were your fellow providers holding up while you were volunteering during this time? Well, I've lost about seven colleagues, both nurses and physicians, to COVID. And I know there's a lot of other administrators that have contracted the virus and have fallen ill. So it, I believe that. I believe that those stats. Uh, that's really unfortunate, especially on the front lines trying to do your job and not being able to have yeah. the proper equipment to protect yourself. So you mentioned there was no testing. Was there any testing available? Once you hit the ICU as a patient, were you able to get a test? Or when did the testing start? Well, really, the testing started, I would say, probably well into April. I mean, in the beginning, there really was no testing. You know, it was more looking at the x-rays, looking at clinical picture, the patients desatting, the patients losing pulmonary function. There really was not testing in the beginning. And then there was lack of testing. So you didn't really want to waste the test, or they quote-unquote waste the test on people that coming in through the urgent care. 
It was only until they were really going downhill that uh, on the unit, they said, okay, well, then we'll, we'll test them because we need to ration the testing. Now it's a little bit different. Now I'm able to tell patients to go to Quest Labs and get antibody testing. But everything was happening on a week-by-week basis and changing so dynamically, so quickly. So unfortunately, when I was volunteering early on in March, there was no testing at all. That's extraordinary. It seems a little bit of an oxymoron to test somebody after they're already crashing in terms of their health status. But I realize that those are the decisions that, mm-hmm. that had to be made at the time. Right. Um, what about the patients that you were seeing? What type of patients, for example, with pre-existing conditions, seem to not be faring so well due to COVID? Interestingly, when we look at patients with other health diseases, these were the diabetic patients that had cardiac problems, history of high blood pressure, or they were on cardiac medications, metabolic syndrome, patients that were overweight, or even smokers, for example. These patients did not do well at all, and they went downhill very, very quickly. And so into the classic cytokine storm? Yes, exactly, exactly. What we know of COVID is that it just infiltrates the lungs like slime, and these patients just lost oxygenation levels very, very quickly and had to be intubated pretty quickly. And most of them didn't even survive being on the ventilator. Yeah, I've seen stats that suggest that if you go onto a ventilator, there's an 80% chance that you're done. Only about 20% survival once you go on a, in a ventilator. Yeah, yeah. And so some of my patients that have survived hospitalization and have been gone past the ventilator, they've survived the ventilator, you know, these are patients that are going into rehab homes. A lot of these patients are having to learn how to swallow again, how to bathe again, eat. So just because you survived getting through COVID and survived the ventilator, this is still an uphill battle that I think patients aren't realizing. It's going to change them for at least six months to a year in. They're just so deconditioned, right? Yeah. Did you happen to notice a higher rate of survival for female versus male patients in your time in the hospital? You know, what's interesting is I didn't give that much thought until I started reading what was coming out of uh, John Hopkins is what I follow, but we started reading some of those papers coming through, and I, I looked back, I was looking back at my charts, and I said, wow, it's actually true. Most of the male patients were affected severely, and some of the female patients just got through it. Male patients also, I was looking back at my own clinical data and the charts, and I said, oh my God, these male patients were not surviving. What is it about these female patients that allowed them to fight the disease? So I was looking through their other diseases and things that they had, other medications they were on, and a lot of the male patients were heavier, smokers, diabetes, high blood pressure. Female patients tend to be healthier. And I guess that tends to be the trend, generally speaking, in our population. Did you see female patients that went into acute respiratory distress syndrome and still came out of it okay, as opposed to the males who probably were done if they went into acute respiratory distress? Yes. I mean, on the other side, there's both male and females, but definitely more females did survive. There was a paper, I'm sure you saw it, that talked about progesterone and estrogen might having an immunomodulating effect for female patients, immunoprotective. Yeah, I did see that, and it's interesting that you mentioned that. One of the thoughts that I've had about this is that I wonder if isoflavones, which have an estrogenic effect, not particularly strong, 
despite warnings that you read about isoflavones, but they do have a nudge towards an estrogenic signaling process. I keep wondering if that could help in any sort of way. Mm. Yeah, that's um, interesting. In terms of the patients that weren't doing well, do you think malnutrition might have played a role in their immune response? Well, absolutely. If you look at the patients that don't do well, a lot of the patients already have comorbidities, and we know that health and wealth are linked in the U.S., right? So the coronavirus has definitely, especially in New York, has hit low-income populations much, much harder. So when we look at zip codes, you notice the patients that are in the metropolitan areas, the underserved patients, Hispanics and Blacks, they make up the disproportionate number of deaths in New York City. I was looking at some stats. I mean, you look at the South and the upper Midwest, New Orleans, these areas have infection rates above 1% of the population. So you're looking at these underserved areas, and they happen to have more comorbidities. They are suffering from cardiac issues and diabetic issues, neuropathy, things like that, that make them even more susceptible. So when COVID hits them, I mean, they don't stand a chance. You know, you've just stimulated some thought on my end in terms of these malnourished folks. Some people suggest that it's crowding because of their housing situations, but I think there's more to it than that, and I do think malnutrition is a piece of it. You know, flavonoids have been shown to reduce the higher the flavonoid concentrations in somebody's diet, the less cardiovascular disease processes and less stroke they have. So we come back to flavonoids again in terms of plant foods. The more plant foods we eat, the more flavonoids we're getting. So it'd be really interesting to be able to break down this data at some point and look at a phytochemical index model, the higher the phytochemistry that somebody consumes. In other words, the more plant compounds they consume, the less disease morbidity you see. That's been shown in a couple of models, especially in obesity and diabetes. So it'd be really interesting to be able to break this down at some point. It's interesting you mentioned that. I talk about bioflavonoids even supplementing with quercetin, with bromelain, you know, a pineapple extract or vitamin C to a lot of my patients if they're not able to get fresh fruits and vegetables because it helps with allergic diseases. It helps with that mast cell exploding and releasing histamine. But sometimes this patient population does not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. They can't go to the market all the time. Or you're shopping at local bodegas where there is not an array of fruits and vegetables. So I definitely, I talk to those patients quite a bit. And if they are able to get vitamin C, zinc, vitamin D3, quercetin, and some bromelain in their diet and get some supplements, it's better than nothing. But you have to remember these low-income and minority communities can't even take off work. So even if they were sick, and this is what I noticed a lot when we were triaging in, in the urgent care, some of these patients say, well, I know I'm sick, I know I have a fever, I don't feel well, but I need to keep cleaning houses. I need to keep going to my job. They need to use public transit, still go to the grocery stores, because if they don't work, then they don't eat. Their families will not eat. And this is something that, especially in New York and in these dense populations, very, very difficult to control the spread of the virus because of that. Boy, there's a lot to unpack, Hugh, and I, I agree. So first, the idea of food deserts in the United States I mean, there are places where people have to drive literally miles to see a fresh fruit or vegetable that just puts it out of their access ability. And then we've got the fact that we really don't have a public health system mm -hmm. in the United States where regardless of your income, you have something to rely on if you're 
actually ill, which of course just increases transmissibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we really do have some, hopefully we'll come out of this with a smarter approach to healthcare in the United States. I hope so. I hope so. I just read in the, the New York Times, the poorest households where the income is less than 35 grand, the COVID infection rate was twice as high compared to the wealthier zip codes with income more than 75K. So it's, I mean, it's the data is there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so unfortunate that it's not being seen as a, an issue and it hasn't been seen as an issue. Hopefully this pandemic will change things. Dr. Chen, what message would you want to deliver to healthcare providers that might be of use to them right now? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've given this a lot of thought as all of this has been happening. I think COVID really allows us to see, and you brought it up, America's public healthcare system. Like it, it's it's allowing us to see the healthcare in a state that no one is really allowed to see. You know, as long as I've been practicing medicine, our healthcare system is is really just been operated on a model of just enough. And we are terrible at treating chronic diseases, right? It's, you have a disease, so you're going to take a pill to kill it, to get rid of the disease. But there really is no preventative model. There's no integrative model, functional model, nutritional model. We're not talking about not getting the disease in the first place and educating. And COVID is really opening our eyes to that, the public. And you know, the PPE issue It's not just about PPE, really. If we look at coronavirus and all these global connections, we should stop thinking about building walls and not not allowing people to come in and out and nationalism and distrust. We're, we're, We're really going about this the wrong way. Ethnic discrimination, for me as an Asian American, I saw that very beginning when COVID hit. This is like a hateful and fearful reaction that doesn't serve us and it's not going to give us a world without disease. So there's a lot to unpack here <laughs> with this pandemic. It's very unfortunate, and I hold deep empathy for you and fellow Asian Americans who have been discriminated against because of this issue. I mean, our politicians aren't helping on that issue either. June, what would you want to say to the general public about COVID-19 right now? Well, I think this is actually a wonderful opportunity that you're giving me here to speak on your platform about this, because this is what we should be doing. We should be sharing information, collaborating on possible solutions for not just COVID, but for public health issues, for preventative care. I think we need more multicultural understanding and collaboration with forums like this that promote helpful discussions is really what we need helpful, positive discussions with an open mind. I completely agree. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you, Kevin. Thanks for your time, and we will see you again.